you're being hijacked. Saboteurs are the negative thought patterns that you have. The reason why it's called a saboteur is because they sabotage your performance and your relationships. My strongest being the hyper-rational means that I intellectualize things. I'm pushing my emotions down because it's too messy. My job is to help individuals gain clarity around their desire for their life experience. And that's going to include perhaps their sense of purpose, values, skills and talents, and getting in touch with their authentic self. Husband and I became more involved caregivers to our aging parents. As local people, we have a much bigger view of generations. Keiki really benefit from interaction with the kupuna. And the kupuna really benefit from the interaction of their adult children who care for them. Engage with something challenging that's going to help you grow. You actually do need a little bit of that kind of stress stimulation. It's when the stress becomes chronic that it becomes a problem. It was hard for organizations to wrap their head around, well, what's both? I was helping organizations with raising productivity, developing their leaders, and bringing wellness to them altogether. I discovered functional medicine, a medical approach that looks for root cause of disease and disorder instead of addressing symptoms. So that was really attractive to me, and that's how I wanted to approach my own health. Greater Good Radio, Connect, Learn, Heal, and Grow is brought to you by Brain Gain Hawaii, a boutique executive recruiting, career development, and coaching firm. Learn more at BrainGainHI.com. Welcome to Greater Good Radio. Today's guest is Robin Stuber, the principal and founder of People-Centered Leadership. Welcome to the show. Hi, Evan. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you. So People-Centered Leadership is a coaching firm, correct? Yes, and more. Okay. So I started as an executive wellness coach and worked with a lot of people one-on-one, but through my network locally through business, I started acquiring more and more organizational or corporate clients. Hmm. And so several people have told me or given me some advice to have more of like an entity name, you know? And so I thought about that. And so I thought, okay, well, let me think about that. And I've actually been working on finding a name, an organization name for my business for at least a year. And so finally, I settled on People-Centered Leadership and launched it on August 1st, just this week. People-Centered Leadership, why did you choose that name? Because I think that what I've noticed in coaching my clients and working with organizations is they're trying to take a wellness approach. But it's also about getting productivity out of their employees. And so how do you balance that, right? Because on the one hand, you have wellness, which is maybe benefits and health-oriented, but you also have productivity and leadership, which might be training and development. And, you know, it's like it was hard for organizations to wrap their head around, well, what's both? Like, how Mm -hmm. can we do both? And so what I found was that I was doing that. I was helping organizations with raising productivity, developing their leaders, and bringing wellness to them all in one, you know, all together. And so this people-centered idea came to mind, and I've been hearing more and more about human-centered organizations and that approach. 
And so I settled on people-centered leadership. Plus the URL was available. Oh, that, that's that's key <laughs> yeah, right there. I know exactly. That is right. super key. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's people-centered leadership. When you say wellness coach, mm-hmm. that could be kind of broad, right? Yeah. So what do you actually mean by wellness and wellness coach? My approach to wellness is mental and physical wellness. I've always been interested in health and have been working on my own health for the last, I want to say more focused on my own health for the last maybe 15 years. And I discovered functional medicine. And so that resonated with me. And so I take a functional medicine approach to my own health. And I nerd out on this stuff a lot. So I went down rabbit holes, you know, quite a bit and discovered that this particular approach of functional medicine, which is a medical approach that looks for root cause of disease and disorder, right? Instead of maybe just addressing symptoms. So that was really attractive to me. And that's how I wanted to approach my own health. So I've been interested in functional medicine as an approach to health. But also I know that there's there's a mental fitness, mental health component as well. You have to be, you know, stress is a major antecedent or underlying cause, root cause of chronic illness. And so if we're talking about stress, now we're talking about mental health, mental wellness. And so I went down the rabbit hole on that. And so really what I guess wellness to me means is both physical and mental wellness together because they're two sides of the same coin. Mm -hmm. You can't have physical health without mental health and you can't have mental health without physical health. And so wellness is both of them together. Mm -hmm. That's the approach I take. So when I started taking on more corporate clients, I found that that was something that they were looking for. Maybe they didn't explain it in the way that they're not asking for functional medicine. And that's not what I'm really truly delivering, but it's an approach. Mm -hmm. It's an approach to employee wellness or leader development that is taking into consideration both their physical and their mental wellness together. And that I think is what's resonating, although it's my sense that this is a developing thing because organizations have had to really evolve how they're approaching employee engagement, leadership development, hiring, you know, employee communication. I mean, everything is so different right now and undergoing so much change so quickly that I think even human resources managers are struggling, you know, a little bit with trying to find, okay, how do I approach this? What path do I take? And so there's a lot of, it's not confusion. It's more just undefined pathways on how to So do they this. know they have a problem and they're not necessarily sure what to do about it, kind of. Exactly. Things yeah. are just very different out there. And, and employees are absolutely under a ton of stress. Especially the HR. Because I, when I look at like mm-hmm. HR, they're like the first responders for the organization. Mm-hmm. So they are the fire department, the police department, the medical staff. You know, I mean, yeah. that's what they are. Mm-hmm. And they haven't had a break yes, for the whole pandemic. Right. You yeah. know, so for healthcare, first responders, teachers, mm-hmm. and HR in particular, none of them had a break. You're right about that. Yeah. So how are the HR people supporting themselves? They have to hold space for their, you know, constituents or yeah. their employees, but if they have 
a low capacity themselves, what are they doing that you've seen? What my observation is, is that their community, the HR community is so supportive. They're so supportive of each other. You know, they have charm, they have all their organizations and they interact with each other. And I think in a way, even though they may come from different companies and organizations, HR professionals locally and I think nationwide have a community. And I think they've been supporting each other through the, you know, through the last three years with all of this change. It's been very impressive. What are you seeing in terms of support? What have you seen? Well, just yesterday, I was at the Mink Center for Business and Leadership. They had an event where a panel on how can organizations better interact with Gen Z, their Gen Z employees, right? And so in the audience, I don't know exactly how many people were there, probably about 100 people there. And they were mostly HR professionals from local banks and, you know, larger companies. But the vibe that I got in the room was very friendly. A lot of, you know, they all knew each other. It was very a supportive vibe. And even coming from the panel that was being interviewed, there was a lot of empathy and compassion there, you know, with regard to all the changes that employers are going through right now. And so that's my sense is the HR community generally is they're very supportive of each other too. Okay. Mm-hmm. So at that event that you went to yesterday, mm-hmm. what was the main takeaway you got from that? That there are five generations in the workforce right now, everything from Gen Z to baby boomers, right? And that their perspective of work is very different from generation to generation. And so that impacts management styles, it impacts communication styles, it impacts understanding just in translation of different terminology or different things like, you know, what is resilience? What is responsibility? What is accountability? What is trust? It means different things to different generations and their expectations on themselves and others is also very different. And so this is something I think that is creating a little bit of that. Again, I don't like the word confusion, but you know, it's a part of the environment that is in this companies right now. Yeah, mm-hmm, yeah, exactly. So that was a big takeaway. Also that Gen Z, what's really important to them is having purpose, having a sense of purpose, not only in life, but that has to be in alignment with what they're doing in terms of work. And so, you know, when you think about that, the baby boomer generation, it was all about well, I can have my purpose, but I really need to adopt the purpose of the company and I need to make my personal sacrifices and I need to, you know, put in 80 hours a week, right? Or something Mm -hmm. like that. But Gen Z does not have that perspective and they want integrated work-life balance. They want integrated sense of purpose. They really want a higher experience of work that is, it sounds like more integrative with their life. Did they talk about like the level of anxiety and depression in Gen Z though? We didn't go into any in-depth conversation about that. I think it may have been mentioned, but yeah, it wasn't really a focus of the conversation. I was reading a stat that said something like, it was something high, like 30% of Gen Z females in particular have heightened sense of anxiety, Mm -hmm. which is affecting their pay. Mm -hmm. And that was an article, I think it was in Fortune or one of those that I had seen. So exactly. So this is another reason why for me in rebranding to people-centered leadership, it felt right because the mental wellness component 
in the workplace, I think is becoming more and more important and essential, I should say. And that's what I'm hearing businesses are looking for. How did this all start? Like, what is the turning point in your life that you went from corporate world Mm -hmm. into this? Yeah, I have been in sales pretty much all my professional life. I've worked in sales in the banking and financial industries, the medical industry, the technology industry. And my last corporate job was with Experian. At first, I was the Hawaii account executive. So I worked with all the banks and credit unions and utilities here selling data and analytical solutions. And then after that, I went back to the Bank of Hawaii for a short time before my husband and I became more involved caregivers to our aging parents. Most, I mean, more specifically, my mother and my father-in-law who are in their 90s. And so my husband had just retired from the fire department. He had 25 years in and was in fire rescue for the last 16 years of his career. So he ended up retiring, but we still needed the flexibility even more so. So it became a little bit of a strain on my schedule and all of this stuff. So I was at a point, I think, even in my life that I felt, well, you know, we're we're pretty secure. I kind of feel like I, you know, I don't want to feel like I can't be, I can't do my job a hundred percent because I'm being pulled in different directions. And so I made a difficult decision to leave that job. And we started caring for my father-in-law who also had dementia. And so that went on for a few months, but I can't sit still. <laughs> and I'm a learner. So you know, were you so- the primary caregiver? Yes, pretty much. So no outside help? We did have some outside help. We did hire in caregivers who would come in during the day. And because my mother-in-law was also in her 90s, so she was there, but she couldn't actively be involved, right, in a lot of the caregiving. And so we would have a caregiver come in, but meal preparation, you know, grocery shopping, all of that stuff, feeding my father-in-law, all of those things fell on the family. And that was a lot of the role that uh, my husband primarily and I, in support of him and of course our own household, that was the role that I had. And so I just decided that, you know what, family is a priority. I made a difficult decision. And then while I was in that transition period, I thought, well, I can't just sit still. I'm a learner. I love to learn. So I need to be doing something else. And this was in 2019. So I thought, well, what online course can I take? Right. I was, I was thinking about what, what new thing can I learn? And I thought, well, you know what? I've had an executive coach before. I wonder that might be something interesting to add to my resume. So I found a coaching academy. Actually, it was a Canadian one called Coaching Out of the Box. I signed up for their nine month course, which was a big investment for me. And by the first month, I knew, I knew, where has this been all my life? (laughs) This is so me. I just loved what coaching is, which I didn't really know before. I was a coaching client before. I had an executive coach years ago when I had my own business. And it was so helpful, but I didn't really understand the profession of coaching. And so when I went through this course, it was like the clouds parted, the sun's rays hit my face and said, this is what you're meant to do. And so it was something I was familiar with in terms of having a home-based business, because as a sales consultant for larger mainland organizations, I worked from home. 
you know, primarily, and I just ran my show. And so it was easy for me to adapt to that lifestyle again. Can I just stay in this area for a, a little bit? And the reason is that I'm in the same kind of age group. Mm-hmm. My father from 2014 had gotten diagnosed with cancer. From then, it's it, you know how it goes. It's like a emergency mad race to help them mm-hmm. and so on. He passed away this actually this year, just a few months ago. Mm-hmm. And the stress of being an actual caregiver, especially if you're a primary or secondary caregiver, is so high that... I mean, I always say I would rather dig a hole in concrete with a spoon in super hot sun. It is like so painful to me, at least. I I don't want to dig up like pain, but for those people that are like in the same boat, right? Like, can you take us a little bit more into what is that like in terms for you? Like, what was your experience trying to manage everything at the same time and then the breaking point of this is my duty or, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever it is. Yeah, I'd like to maybe take an approach to this question from an angle that might surprise you. So my response to that would be that you, the caregiver, particularly of a family loved one, need to take a step back and get in touch with what your internal sense of purpose and meaning in this scenario is. That sounds super philosophical, but it's really important because what happens when you become a caregiver is you begin to lose sight of your boundaries, your personal boundaries. And that's caused in part by what you're thinking, the thoughts you're having. And a lot of them are contradictory to each other. So on the one hand, it's like, oh my gosh, I got to take care of my mom or got to take care of my dad, you know, all of this stuff. On the other hand, it's like, why do I have to do this? Why is this falling on me? Right? And then there's all these important decisions that you have to make. So I don't think that it's very, very rare that someone will think about doing that. But that's really what you have to do. You have to look internally first. And think a little bit about, well, think a lot about 10 years from now, when I'm looking back on this situation, how do I want to see me showing up here? Because I think a lot of people lose sight of their priorities and they lose sight of their boundaries when that situation becomes a part of their life. It's something they don't think about. And so they're just skimming on the surface of everything that's happening. And that's going to create stress. It's going to create a lot of internal stress because you're out of alignment. You haven't had time to process how it's affecting you. I fully agree with that. The thing I want to add is that if someone doesn't have strong boundaries already, or they have a boundary wound or so on that they can't hold those boundaries, like I can't, they're not caring for themselves. Everything is about others, which tends to lead to shame, right? Which is like, I'm not worth it. I'm not worthy, so I'm going to keep doing this because I need to prove it or so on. Then going into those types of situations, like now I have to caregive for my parent. I have to caregive for my kids, potentially spouse, whoever else. Yeah. And then you throw the pandemic on it and you physically separate people out. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what we're seeing right now. Yeah. The aftershocks of that. So to me, like when my dad got sick, everything stopped. We moved him to like Seattle. For almost two years. Mm-hmm. 
we moved with him like for about a year or so going back and forth. And that's at the same time I had my fourth child. My wife was doing a full-time PhD plus working plus our businesses and so on. It was not just strain on the caregiver, but the caregiver's family and it's invisible to an extent. So I surf with your husband mm-hmm. and there's another guy out there and I would say, what are you working? He's like, no, I'm just caring for my mom. And I would think, oh, you're lazy initially. And then I had to do it. Mm-hmm. And then I'm like, oh dude, that's the hardest job that there possibly is. Yeah. So what was the point where it's like, this is what my priority is going to be? Did you do that exercise of this is my boundaries and purpose and so on? No, we didn't only because given where we are in life, my husband and I, Greg and I, this is something we talked about way before it happened. Mm. We talked about what our priorities were going to be with our parents. And we knew that when it came to his parents and when it came to my mom, my dad's gone already, that we understood our roles that we're the caregivers in our family. I have brother-in-laws, but they don't live in Hawaii. I have a sister, but it's kind of like understood that this is, you know, I raised my hand to take care of my mom. So my husband and I actually already had an understanding that this was going to be our role individually and that we were going to support each other in it. Can I ask something on that? Mm -hmm. You said that you knew that that was your role. You raised your hand on it. What's underneath that? For me personally, I have had experience in my own family of family being the caregiver. My grandma on my dad's side had Alzheimer's for 10 years. And we cared for her at home the entire time. It was a family effort. My uncles, my aunties, my mom and dad, they all took turns in. We had a whiteboard at her house with a schedule. We had help come in. It was a very coordinated family effort. We had a family meeting. You know, the uncles and my aunties talked, and this is how they decided to do it. And that's how it happened. And it lasted for many, many years. I had maybe a couple of aunties who said, this is beyond my boundary. I'm out. You know, okay, you know your boundary. You know, that's good to communicate that, right, rather than to harbor resentment. So on the one hand, I had that example. And it didn't scare you? No, no, it didn't. And so when I think about my parents, I've always known that that's something that I wanted to do as much as I could. I never really thought about specific scenarios, but I think that maybe I, having seen the example with my grandma, I was somewhat aware of how it could be done, right? One way of how it could be done. And I knew that there are ways that I can look for help to come in or, you know, whatever. I I think that what that experience helped me also with is to anticipate, to do things before it's needed. So for example, the good example of that is right now we're doing a major renovation on our house. And in part, that's preparation to move my mom in. There's nothing wrong with my mom right now. She's 85. She's totally independent. She lives on her own. But I'm going to have her move in because I don't want to wait until some emergency or something happens and I'm having to drop everything I'm doing and then, you know, taking care of my mom in more of an urgent kind of a situation, right? So it's a little bit of preparation that way. Even with my mother-in-law, who's still alive at 96 years old, you know, we've set up things to make sure that we're in communication with her. Luckily, we only live a minute away from her. 
my husband's in daily contact with her. We go over there often. We're doing grocery shopping and bringing over meals. I guess it's integrated into our way of life. And for me, I've taken a little bit of time to think about anticipating those a future time where I might have to devote more time or more planning or whatever into my mother-in-law or my mom's care. But, you know, I, I can't predict the future. So mm -hmm. I just have to know that whatever happens, I will have the mental resilience to handle whatever comes my way and that I will do my best to be resourceful. And I'm pretty confident that I have a good sense of where my personal boundaries are and that everything will work out well. You guys are local, right? You were mm -hmm. born local? Yep. So what is it that, this is what I see, like local people, they just know when the parents are getting old, they're coming to take care. It doesn't matter if you are executive at Google, you run mm -hmm. a hedge fund, it doesn't matter because I get calls like that all the time as a recruiter mm -hmm. and it's, you know, I got to come home. What am I going to do? My parents, you know, I have to care for my parent. Whereas I know for a number of people I've talked to with my friends on the mainland, they're like, oh, no, we just put our parent in the home or or so on. It's mm -hmm. like over here, there's a super strong responsibility of, of somebody is going to take care of the parent mm -hmm. regardless of almost anything mm -hmm. else. Do you notice that or where, you, where is that coming from or what? Yeah, no, that's a really good observation. I don't know. I guess I've never really had the same kind of exposure to that that you have. But my guess is that living local, we are among our generations. So we are among our great-grandchildren and our great-grandparents. So perhaps, I'm not sure, this is my guess, is that as local people, we have a much bigger view of generations. And so we have learned how they all interact, right? And how they benefit each other. The Keiki really benefit from interaction with the kupuna, and the kupuna really benefit from the interaction of the adults, their adult children who care for them. And I think that we see that much more closely, and so we understand why that's important. That's my guess. That's what I'm thinking anyway. We interact so much more with multiple generations, and we witness multiple generations in our community interacting together. And we understand a lot better why that's so important. You know what I noticed on that too is that when I went to school in the mainland and so on, if you're 18 for a good chunk of the people I met over there, you're kind of on your own, right? Mm -hmm. It's like now it's time for you to move out, do on your own. That's not the case a lot of times over here, right? It's like housing is so expensive and so on. It's like, you know, you, you can stay here. So because it almost seems like because we're not kicked out more or less so early, then it's almost unspoken that on the tail end of that, it's the same kind of response. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? You didn't kick me out early. I will be taking care of you at that. That to me kind of, there's something there, at least when I notice it, just maybe just in me. And I think values are changing, you know, now. I have a 26-year-old son and I have three-step children. They're from range in their early 30s to mid-20s. And, you know, I think that, on the one hand, they're very family-oriented, but on the other hand, they're very independent. And I think that's good. You know, I think that there's a nice balance to it. And the thing is, it's each person has to determine for themselves what they want their life experience to be. 
And this is what I think attracts me to coaching so much is part of what my job is, is to help individuals gain clarity around their desire for their life experience. And that's going to include perhaps their sense of purpose. It's going to include perhaps their values. It's going to include their skills and talents and getting in touch with their authentic self. When you kind of, you know, accumulate all of that stuff, you say, okay, well, are you living that? Are the decisions you're making and the path you're taking in alignment? And a lot of times it's not because we're living what we think other people expect of us, right? And we're making decisions based on what the paths our friends are taking or the path that we think our parents want us to take or whatever that might be. And it feels on the one hand good because perhaps we're getting, you know, pat on the back from society and family. But on the other hand, on the inside, it's feeling like, I don't know, I'm not, I'm not happy. Why? And what we discover through the coaching conversation is the misalignment there. And so when a client gains clarity around that, again, it's like the clouds are parting and the sun begins to shine. And now they're able to identify where the gap is. And then as a coach, my job is to help them create the action steps to start moving forward in in bridging that gap. And a lot of times they begin to realize that they put hurdles in front of themselves on their own. It didn't have to be there. And so when they begin to see that and start moving those hurdles away and start clearing the mind of those negative thought patterns that they have, oh my God, goodness, now everything seems so much clearer. Your stress lowers and you raise your sense of happiness. You ever heard of Carl Jung? Yes. Right? So Carl Jung has a super quote that I like, which is, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will lead your life and you will call it fate. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when I was listening to that, I mean, the same as when I'm coaching people or even helping them transition their career or whatever it may Mm be, it's everything that runs us typically is unconscious. Yes. Yeah. So... Until that becomes conscious, the same way Peter Drucker said, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. Yes. Same thing. If you don't even know it's there, it's just going to keep running. Yeah. Yes, that's so true. And a lot of times we believe that our thoughts reflect who we are. And that is not necessarily true either, because we have most people, in fact, I would say all people, do develop habitual negative thought patterns that actually sabotage our performance and our happiness. We don't know that. We think that it's a part of who we are. Let's take, for example, a perfectionist, right? And I tell you, Evan, you know what? I just want you to let you know right now that if I'm going to do this interview, I need it to be 70 six degrees in the room. Okay. You just, this is just how I am. This is just how I roll. Right. And I'm believing that that is me and that is truly what I need to perform well. But what's, what, what it truly is a negative thought pattern in my head saying, if I don't control my environment, I'm not going to be able to do this well. It's a fear-based kind of a thought pattern. But it Um, kept you safe when you were young. Exactly. It's just that it's not necessarily helping out now. Exactly. Right. And there's neuroscience now, right? That is showing us that that thought pattern, the more we reinforce it over the decades of our life, become hardwired. 
in our brain, right? These neural connections, but it becomes a hardwiring in our brain, like muscle memory. It becomes habitual. It becomes a pattern. It becomes so automatic that we truly believe that that is who we are and that is what we believe with totally being unaware that it's actually inhibiting our ability to have healthier and happier relationships and be more productive. They are adaptive measures that are helpful at the time. Mm -hmm. And as it progresses, they are not necessarily helpful. So that's unconscious, right? Mm -hmm. When your intention and your impacts don't match, then that's unconscious at that point. Mm-hmm. And you can see that in the body. So like in 2019, I had a series of injuries where, I mean, it, from 2018, basically my wife got really sick. We didn't know if she would like live or not. She's okay now, but that time was very scary. I had second degree burns. I got sick for two months and then I broke my back and I was immobile for kind wow. of a while. I didn't want to wear the back brace because it was super uncomfortable that they wanted me to wear. And they would tell me no bending, lifting or twisting. And I'm like, okay, fine, whatever. But it wasn't until the PT at rehab hospital said, look, if you don't wear this back brace, you see that kid over there? And it was a, it was a kid, well, kid to me is like 21 or somewhere around there, said, I'm looking at him. And this young man has ropes like tied around his legs. And he was grabbing it with his hand and moving his leg, wow. right? He was paralyzed from the bottom down, I guess a motorcycle accident. She goes, you have the same injury that that guy has. And your vertebrae is right on your spine. If you do not wear this brace and you make one wrong move, you're him. Mm. And I'm like, give me the brace. And I was like, everything from there was do not move. Like, do not bend, do not lift, do not twist, do not move for like eight months, right? And that was in there, totally in there. But you take it two years later, that was still stuck in there. So my flexibility was really weak Mm. because... Every time I would move in a certain, I would automatically stop. It's not a conscious stop. My body just knew to stop. So that had to be a conscious effort to actually go into the body and retrain out of it and so on. But that's the exact same way yeah. with all of these other pieces that are there. At one point, being negative and saying, don't do this and so on was helpful. At this point in our life, it could potentially be not helpful. But exactly. until it's conscious, it runs you. Exactly. And so I offer a program called Positive Intelligence. Have you heard of it? My friend is in it. So oh, that's the only thing I've heard. Yeah, yeah. I don't yeah. want to out them, but they're in it. Yeah. So Positive Intelligence. Mm-hmm. There's a book by the same name and the author is Shirzad Shamin. He is a Stanford researcher and lecturer. He has a TED Talk out there. He wrote that book and it's not really new. I think he put it out like in 2016 or so. So it's been out there for a while. But what he did about four years ago was to transform this into an actual program. It's a six-week program. And he was ingenious. What he did was, after having implemented this program in a lot of Fortune 500 companies, you know, all the big names that he's kind of you know, rolled this out to their leadership, Google and Jamba Juice and Wells Fargo and all of these company names. He did something really ingenious. He invested in app technology, and then he started rolling this out into the coach community and started offering that program for free to coaches as a way to introduce them to the idea of exactly what we've been talking about, how to identify your habitual negative thought patterns that hold you back, 
and then work on changing that, right? Shifting into a different way. And so anyway, about four years ago or so, he created a whole program around it and is using the coach community as a way to bring this out into the general public and especially into small and medium-sized businesses. And, And it truly is a transformational program. If the individual going through it is open-minded and does the mental fitness exercises, I have had clients who have changed their lives. It's changed their lives. And it's really exactly what we've been talking about, identifying your negative thought patterns and understanding how it's holding you back, working on building a daily practice of mental fitness through an app-guided daily activities over an app. You start to do these mental fitness exercises every day that's designed to rewire your brain. So what I mean by that is I talked about hardwired neural connections, right? Because we've had these negative ideas and thoughts in our head since we were a kid and we've brought it into our adult life. So it begins to atrophy that because when we notice that we're having that negative thought, we're intercepting it. So the first mental muscle is saboteur intercept. We call these negative thought patterns saboteurs. And so we intercept it. And then what we do is we shift it through mental fitness. We shift that thought so that now we are purposefully changing the neural connections in our brain. So now when we have a negative thought and we're firing off that neural pattern going to those negative thoughts, we're purposefully stopping it and we're activating neural activity to other parts of our brain that's connecting us to our empathy circuitry, to our big picture thinking to our intuitive wisdom, to our creativity. And when we do that, now we're strengthening our mental resilience. Now we're strengthening our mental muscles. Now we're beginning to shift away from pessimistic, negative thought patterns that hurt us. And we're developing stronger mental resilience, building positivity in our outlook, tapping into other parts of our brain that have other kinds of intelligence, right? This is the subconscious that I think you are referring to. It's there. It's working kind of like a parallel processor, right? You know, we're, we're here working on our RAM stuff, but then other, the computer's working on other problems. I'm talking about the operating system. Yeah, exactly. Your unconscious mind. Right, exactly. Yeah. So that's what we're impacting so that we're bringing to our everyday lives a lot more connection to people and a different kind of problem solving that is helping us not waste our mental energy and emotion and stress on negativity, but bringing positivity and creative problem solving. And it's really impactful. Like what's a story of of impact, like an anecdotal story? When I was going through the program for the first time. This was after the other coaching program. Yes. So I was going through the positive intelligence program. And at that time, you know, life was good. I have a great marriage with my husband. But one of the things that what happened every now and then is we would get into it every now and then, right? When we had to maybe talk about making some decision, I would say, oh yeah, you know, here's, here's all the information and this is the right choice because A, B, C, D. And so let's do this. And Greg, my husband would go, well, why does it always have to be your way? And I said, well, it doesn't, right? So tell me, okay, okay tell me what is your way. Okay, well, see, my way is better. 
because of these reasons, right? And so every now and then we would just kind of like struggle in you know, Did and it turn into a full-on beef or no, not really? no, 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 oh. no plates were thrown, no <laughs> plates were broken in the process. But you know, it would be kind of heated, and it would just kind of not be. Ha- you know, it would would go to bed mad, and it would carry over to the next day, and it was just not good. So anyway, I'm going through this program, and I'm beginning to learn things about myself. And there's an assessment that you take called the saboteur assessment, and it identifies your most common negative thought patterns. And mine happen to be, my saboteurs are the hyper-rational and the restless. There are nine different kinds of saboteurs. My top happen to be hyper-rational and restless. What does that mean, saboteur then? Yeah. So saboteurs are your, the negative thought patterns that you have. So the reason why it's called a saboteur is because they sabotage your performance and your relationships, right? Is there anything and, positive about the saboteur, though? Is it what is it helping? Can well, you get results doing it that way, or save yourself from pain? They, that's what they want you to think. That's what the saboteurs have caused us to believe, which is why we let them have power over us, right? If if I don't have my saboteurs to push me into doing things, right, and achieving things, I wouldn't be where I'm at. But at the same time, I'm not happy. At the same time. I feel shame or guilt, or at the same time, I'm feeling inadequate. At the same time, I'm beating myself up, right? So yes and or no, the saboteurs are there and you think that they're helping you, but in reality, they're not. A lot of my clients are, are telling me, wow, you know, my saboteurs don't allow me to live in the moment. My saboteurs don't allow me to appreciate what's happening now and the achievements that I do have. I'm already off to the next thing. So in this story with my husband, my saboteurs being the, my strongest being the hyper-rational means that I intellectualize things a lot. I'm pushing my emotions down because it's too messy, right? It's too uncomfortable for me. So I'll just stick with the facts. I'll look at the information. It becomes a calculus for me. And that's how I solve problems. For my husband, Greg, his top saboteur is the hyper-vigilant. The hyper-vigilant saboteur makes you believe that you're you're the only one that can see all the dangers out there. Hence firefighter. Yeah, exactly. Hence extreme firefighter. Right. Yeah. You know, and and so you have to protect other people because you see it, they don't and but and so you have to make sure that you're you, you have plan B and plan C and plan D and plan E and plan F and plan G, right? Because you see all the risks. So that's my husband's strong saboteur. So when it came to decision making, I'm trying to be efficient. But he's trying to really, you know, look at all the potentialities. And I'm thinking, but the greatest probability is this. We can forget about the extremes, right? But he is thinking about the extremes. This was all unseen to both of us before. But after going through the program, I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, that is exactly what's happening. And so what I had to work on is to quiet that hyper-rational saboteur, get more connected to my emotional circuitry, right? My empathy, my, what shifted for me was, Robin, yes, you guys are trying to solve the problem, but you got to be appreciative of Greg's input here because he's seeing things from a different perspective and it might be valuable. So don't just discount him. Don't let your uh, hyper-rational saboteur tell you that he's wrong. You got to give him the space because 
another thing that's important to me is our marriage, is the relationship. And so I've, I have to allow... Which is more important to you. Exactly, right? Yeah. In the moment, I'm not thinking about that because I'm muscle memory to that way of thinking, right? That hyper-rational way of thinking. But now by building my mental muscles, now I'm able to have that space. Now I'm able to connect with my empathy circuitry. Now I'm able to appreciate what my husband's input is. And Evan, I'm telling you, it changed it, not only for me, but also for him. So, you know, he can see what his saboteur is. But Did is you notice ch any change in him? So what happens is a lot of times with any type of dyadic relationship, right, two people or so on, it's always the other person needs to be fixed, right? You go <laughs> yeah. into a couple's therapy or so on, it's always like, we're here, this person has a problem, please get them straight so they understand yeah. exactly what's yeah, going yeah, on, yeah. right? When what really needs to happen is there's a U-turn, right? Y-O-U, U-turn back in, and it's our stuff that we need to get resolved. And yeah. then when we do that, then all of a sudden this problem goes away and it's not the other person, yeah. it's me. Yeah. Well, that happened also, right? So on the one hand, yes. So when I changed, the dynamic changed. When I became more mentally resilient, it, it benefited the relationship. But then when he went through the program, then it had an even greater positive outcome as well, right? I, I can't experience things from his perspective, but he's making changes and that's influencing the relationship. And so I can't even tell you, Evan, the last time we had one of those, you know, headbutt moments. I can't even tell you when. It's been, I don't know, it's been months, if not a year already. Do you think it's also because he's retired now? He's been retired for five years. Oh, for five yeah, years. No. Okay. But I'll tell you another, that was a, my personal story, but I've rolled this out in organizations. You'll see a little bit about it on my website because I use it as a little bit of a case study. But what happens is when, when you do this in a team, when you roll this out in an organization, earlier I talked about performance, leadership, and wellness together, right? So what happens is it impacts the individual at that personal level. It's improving things at home in their personal life. But in an organization, in a team, what's happening is it's building trust. It's enhancing mutual accountability. It's allowing for better communication, especially around difficult conversations. And it's helping the team members have a better understanding of each other, knowing that, hey, we're all looking for our own self-actualization. I am, and I know you are. And so I know that this experience that we're having in this company, with this job, in my role as our team, is playing a role in each of our greater sense of purpose in our life. And so it's like a 360 degree impact that this program makes. So the team operates better, but here's the kicker, something I completely didn't expect. When I asked my client for the feedback on what the impact was, they said that it positively impacted people who weren't in the program. Just by the team becoming more efficient and calmer and different, it had a halo effect on other people in the organization who were interacting with the team in a positive way. I mean, that makes sense, right? Because yeah. projection is perception, right? So whatever you see inside, what you feel, if you feel the world's dangerous and so on, that's all we see. And we project it onto somebody else and that, mm -hmm. that's how we can see it. It's like inside first and then 
outside. Exactly. And that's the only way it works. Right, you cannot right. fix all the outside. Right. And you do, when I listen to that, it goes wellness as the foundation, which then creates a more whole leader. Then you create performance. Exactly. It's exactly. in that order. And, and I think, you know, kind of going back to what we talked about earlier with wellness and HR, right? And the rapid change and the struggle of adapting to that change with regard to HR departments and what they're trying to do for their employees. This is, I think, why it's resonating with more and more organizations. And so I'm continuing to roll out positive intelligence in companies is because it is about mental and physical wellness together. Stress is a physical response. Stress is physiological. But where does stress start? It starts in the thoughts. It starts in the mind. And so you, you really have to approach it together from both sides. When I think about that, it goes, stress is the effect of the force being too high for whatever it can handle, right? So like you have loose lug nuts on your car tires and you're going around a tight turn. It creates stress on that joint much more than if it was tightened, right? Mm -hmm. So the stress is a effect, not the cause of something else. And then when you think about it, you go, okay, is the cause then going to be coming out of my mental, you know, the stories we tell ourselves and so on? Could it be something physiological, right? I think when people look at stress a lot as a it's cause of stress, stress is, is still a symptom of something else. You know, stress can be good, right? We The, the human person does need some degree of stress, we actually do need a little bit of that kind of stress stimulation to, you know, it is healthy for the body to have a little bit of stress, but it's when the stress becomes chronic that it yeah. becomes a problem. And it won't be evident immediately, right? This is, we're talking about over years with chronic stress and high levels of cortisol that are just sustained for a long time. That's when you start to manifest a lot of the metabolic disease, cardiovascular disease, whatever however it's going to manifest, right? Chronic inflammation, all kinds of things. And this is now getting back full circle to where we started with the functional medicine. Mm -hmm. And so in addition to becoming certified as a coach, I am a board certified health and wellness coach as well. And it's so interesting because in my coach training, this is what we talk about. We talk about how the mental affects the physical. And so what we're really trying to do is you want to make work challenging. Even as an individual, you want to engage with something challenging that's going to help you grow. And that is optimal, right? That is when you can get into the flow. That's when you're kind of in this place where you're being challenged, but you're meeting the challenge. And there's this continual positive feedback loop because you're achieving, but you're kind of stressed because you have to work hard, but then you're achieving. And that's a good kind of stress. It becomes negative when you can't turn it off. And when those negative saboteurs start making you believe that you're not achieving enough or you're doing something wrong or whatever the negative thought pattern is. If it's negative, if it's creating a negative emotion, you're being sabotaged. You're being hijacked. And so that's a little bit of the difference. The, the antithesis to that or the good stress is I'm working towards something. I'm feeling positive. I'm feeling like I'm achieving my purpose. I feel like I'm contributing. 
I feel like I'm in alignment with my sense of purpose. I'm enjoying being engaged with people, right? Those can feel like stress, but it's in the positive side. So that's the difference. That's the difference. It's normal to constantly bounce between them. It's a matter of what is the ratio. So there's a ratio of three to one, which is it takes three positive thoughts or emotions to balance out every one. And so most people are not in that ratio. Most people might be on a one-to-one or less than a one-to-one. But if you are experiencing primarily negative thoughts and emotions in your day, if more than a third of your thoughts and emotions are negative in the day, you may be in a state of chronic stress. Three to one sounds pretty pretty close in ratio to me because I know that, you ever heard of John Gottman? Yes. So Gottman is, is a pretty famous researcher for yes. like couples therapy mm-hmm. and so on. And I think one of the stats, I think it's from Gottman, I could, you know, I could be wrong, but it was in couples dialogues that the positive to negative ratio had to be something, it was like nine or 20 to one or something. It was like yeah. way more than True. it had to be in order to kind of balance itself out. Yeah. That's in marriages. Yes. So that was done on research that could essentially predict, right? The divorce rate yeah. in couples. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the three to one ratio is coming from Dr. Barbara Fredrickson out of North Carolina Chapel Hill University. And she is a positive psychology researcher. And so the general ratio is three to one. So it's something that maybe could be applied in the workplace and generally in your life. But when you're talking about marriage, right, that important relationship, you are correct that the research is showing a much, much higher ratio of seven or more to one. You know the thing, though, when you think about it, though, we have a marriage is a relationship between you and somebody else externally, whereas the relationship that I believe we're discussing is internally, and that marriage is, you you can't break up. That, to me, is the more important relationship, because Mm -hmm. when that relationship is strong and connected and valued and empathized, then the outside relationships just kind of follow suit. The way that we look at that through positive intelligence is a shift in perspective. It really is a shift in perspective. It's like another way that I like to think about positive intelligence, the program is accelerating wisdom. You know, it's like when you look back from where you are today, you look back when you're in your 20s, right? And you go, man, I wish I knew then what I know now, right? A lot of, if you think about that, you think, you know, I used to believe things that were not true, or I used to believe things that were inaccurate because we were in a mindset back then that we just simply were unaware. We didn't have life experience or we just misunderstood the environment or whatever it is, right? So we can look back now and go, wow, you know, I just didn't know I was whatever. In the same way, so so now you have a perspective that you didn't have before. You're the same person, but you shifted perspective because of greater maturity, greater knowledge, right? You're kind of not the same person though, because with all of the life experience and so on, you will be different. You may be in the same body to an extent, but mm-hmm. kind of not. Well, I would challenge that a little bit and say that you still have the same essence, that you Your have. soul. Yes, soul, spirit. But how you express yourself is essentially relatively stable all your life. 
You know, so for example, I use an assessment in my practice called the VIA Character Strengths, the VIA Character Strengths. And you can actually, there's a free assessment you can take. You can go to viacharacter.org and take this assessment. And what it assesses is your innate strengths. So I'm not talking about skills and talents like Strengths Finder and DISC, right? Myers-Briggs stuff. This is about your innate natural expression. And that does stay relatively stable over over time. So the VIA character strengths is the underlying research comes from the study of positive psychology, Dr. Martin Seligman, and all of the founding fathers of positive psychology about going on maybe 15 years ago or so. And a lot of these other assessments like StrengthsFinder, you'll see some parallels, but character strengths is really not about your strengths and talents. It's about your expression, how you naturally express yourself. I would say yes and no to that, Evan. The way that I look at it is kind of like you're, we're climbing a mountain, right? So we're still the same hiker. We're going up the mountain. But at different points in our journey, we have a different perspective. We're looking back and seeing things that we didn't see before, but we're still looking up and we still can't see what's in the future. But the experience that we've had along the way has impacted us. Now we're acclimated to a new altitude. Now our legs are stronger and we can carry ourselves a a lot higher. Now we know better what provisions we need as we go higher up the mountain. So we're more educated, we're more mature. In that way, we are different. I guess what character strengths helps to bring to the surface is you do have a core authentic self. I think that's what I was saying. Yeah, you're, okay. you're at your core, your soul, your spirit, your authentic actual self mm-hmm. without all of the you know stuff that comes on mm-hmm. from society and so on. That stays the same. Yeah. Absolutely. Come in with it at birth, you leave with it. Yeah. And when you die. Yeah. yeah we're on the same page. Yeah. 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 yeah, exactly. We're talking about, you know, changing in perspective and that's a little bit of the work that I believe that my clients are able to achieve through the positive intelligence program is an accelerating of wisdom. You know, instead of waiting till you're 70 and looking back and saying, oh, why did I let my health go and sacrifice that for work, right? You can actually unveil that wisdom now when you work on your mental fitness, when you examine those negative thought patterns that hold you back, that sabotage and hijack you, when you become aware of that and then you do the actual work of mental fitness, which is atrophying the neural activity that continues to reinforce the negative thoughts and start to build mental muscles toward into other parts of your brain that's helping to advance the wisdom. Have you ever heard of neurofeedback? Yes. Okay. Uh, Have you ever done it? Yeah. yeah. My, My sister actually is a clinical psychologist, Leanne Philhauer. Her practice is called Present Mind Institute. It's an integrative psychology practice, and I'm associated with their clinic. And she's got, I want to say, I think she's got like four clinical psychologists in her practice. It's located in Kaneohe. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. So good size. Yeah. 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 Okay. And they use neurofeedback. Yeah. Mm Because my wife is a neurofeedback practitioner as well as an educator and so on too. And I've done, you know, hundreds of them myself. I was just mentioning it because that's the easiest way. When you're talking about like rewiring and so on, that's the least like feel it to heal it way to do it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You have to do it every day. And this is the thing I think that most people 
aren't aware that they have more control over than they think. Because when we get up in the morning and we put our feet on the floor, we're already in the future. We are so not present. We are either ruminating on our regrets from yesterday, or we're already thinking about what we're going to have for lunch and what I have to do. And we're never in the present. Oh, yeah. Super good for that, Mm -hmm. for ruminating thoughts and mind chatter. Just wondering if you had done that in conjunction with your program, you know what I mean? Because it would make the neuroplasticity easier, I would think. Yeah. It's done through guided exercises over the app. And the app is kind of gamified in a way where there are different meters that measure your mental charge in the moment and then how much mental muscle you're building over the weeks that you're in the program. We're not hooking you up to any neurofeedback device. But maybe in conjunction is what I was saying. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like you do it in conjunction because... Because neurofeedback is super good with like ADHD, anxiety, yeah. depression, mm-hmm. even seizures, and then really good with developmental trauma and helping to kind of lower fear mm-hmm. and things like that. I was thinking, oh, if you do it at the same time, is, then it would make it like easier. It's almost like, you know, having a spotter all the time when you're lifting weights, yeah. but helping you lift it. So you never tried it like in conjunction. Like with your um, sisters and that? No, I think that for my clients are tend to be professionals and, you know, working in kids and super busy lives. Program is very, you know, is curated and developed in a way that is designed for really busy people. Mm-hmm. I could possibly integrate it. I can see doing that, but it would then require like another level of participation on the client side the that they'd have to the yeah that they'd have to you know be you know be be willing to sign up for that yeah because yeah. you figure if the client's motivated enough to go into that program which takes a commitment and you know time and money and mm-hmm. so on they could be definitely motivated to do yeah. it all cuz yeah. very busy people that are at high levels we want to get stuff done yep exactly but you know it's like a muscle right are you going to be able to lift you know, 200 pounds after the first workout? No. You know, you have to start. It's going to be difficult to get into a rhythm. It's always a challenge to start a new habit, and especially a new daily habit, right? But the metaphor that I like to use when I talk to people about the program is it's kind of like brushing your teeth. You know, when you were little, your parents had to like get on you to brush your teeth. Evan, did you brush your teeth this morning? Right? And they had to drill it into you to begin to help you formulate the habit of brushing your teeth. But you don't brush your teeth to fix a cavity that you have right now, right? You brush your teeth today because it's about oral hygiene overall and health in the future. You brush your teeth today for Evan a year from now, right? It's kind of the same thing. Initially, that's why we have an app. That's why we have weekly check-ins in the program. It's to help with the accountability and help people stay on track. But once you kind of get into the rhythm of it, once you begin to feel the effects of it, now there's intrinsic motivation to keep going. And hopefully by the end of the six to eight weeks that the program runs, you'll be doing daily mental fitness. And that's going to have an impact both maybe in in the short term, but mostly for the longer, longer term. So how are you tying in functional medicine into this? The way that I tie it in is... Like I said, we're both mind and body. So in conjunction with helping people to rewire, right, that neuroplasticity, helping them to atrophy their negative thoughts and 
start gaining more connectivity to other parts of their brain that are bringing value to their life. It's also about making sure that you are doing other things for your physical health that also influence your brain, your cognition, your emotional state, your mood state. So for example, gut microbiome. <laughs> we are learning so much more about that. But I'll tell you that the gut microbiome came onto my personal radar over 10 years ago because I started experiencing autoimmune symptoms. And I would go to the doctor and all my tests would come back normal. Like what kind of symptoms? What would show up? A number of different weird things. It was like joint pain, just brain fog. By two o'clock, I'd be so tired that I would have to take a nap every day. How long ago was that? 12 years oh, ago 10, now. Oh, okay. Yeah. You know, just feeling kind of just no energy, lack of energy, even though I'm a super active person. And then I started getting a rash, like this weird, you know, very, very itchy, itchy rash and like my joint site. So here in my elbow and the back of my neck. It's and like rheumatoid arthritis kind where I don't joint's know. going and then all. I don't know. So I went to the doctor, right? All my tests are coming back normal. I go to the dermatologist. So I go to the doctor for my joint pain, right? No, you know, test normal. I go to the dermatologist for the rash. She gives me cortisone cream, a cortisone mm -hmm. cream, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm going, okay. Thank you. It's helping the itchy, but I want to know why. I want to know what's causing all this stuff. I have a feeling they're connected, but nobody's helping me with that. So I had to do all my own research. And what I discovered was that I possibly could have leaky gut because some of the symptoms sounded the same, including the rash. And so I thought, well, how do I fix that, right? A gastroenterologist is not going to do a biopsy of my gut to find out if I have damaged gut lining, right? So I just did my own research and I discovered that gluten in wheat, for some people, can create this condition, so, yeah, celiac yeah, yeah. disease, yeah, so right? Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. So I thought, well, I can take out gluten on my own. I don't need a doctor for that. So I stopped eating bread wheat, anything that has wheat in it. And Evan, I'm telling you in three months, all my symptoms were gone. All my symptoms were gone. So gluten is all gluten. gluten. I have a non-celiac gluten sensitivity. And I went down the rabbit hole deep on this one. And so I learned about the gut microbiome, the trillions of bacteria, viruses, and fungi that live in our gut that actually we need to live. I test my gut microbiome about once a year. You mean you do the poop test? I do the poop that test. One, and you send it away? Yes, okay. and send then, it away. Then you're taking probiotics or what are you doing? I do that, but I try to get most of my gut microbiome nutrients from food. Okay. So that's the best way. Like the best what foods are you doing? Fruits and vegetables, fermented foods. Like a pickle or like a kimchi? Natto, kimchi. Natto. Yes, all of those yummy things. Like which ones you like the best? Oh, I don't know. I mean, natto is a newer one for me. And this is so interesting. I used to think I hate natto, mm. but I love natto now. Isn't that weird? Which one though? Because there's so many. So with natto, I think the natto itself is the same. It's the sauce the packets, so uh -huh. the flavorings that you put in there that's different. So I don't even use that. I just throw those little packets. I just throw it away because shoyu has wheat in it. If I don't know what's in it, I'm going to throw it away because... I don't trust. And wheat is used as a filler in so many things. You got to read labels. Tube wasabi has wheat in it. You got to read the label. Oyster sauce, shoyu, kochujung, all of those. 
you got to read the label because it has wheat in it. So I usually buy tamari. Tamari is a fermentation process of soy that does not use wheat. So it's a little stronger, but it tastes just, you wouldn't know the difference. It's a little bit more expensive, but I really make it go a long way. So I cook at home. My husband and I, we grow vegetables. We are very careful about where we get our produce from and our meat. So where do you get it from? We like to shop at Kualoa Ranch. We try to support local as best we can. We shop at some farmer's markets, have some good quality meats there. Our meat intake is actually small. We don't not eat meat, but in proportion to the other things that we do eat, it's really a third Have of... Have you seen Maui Nui venison? No, yeah. but... So they're, I mean, Maui, yeah. right? So they have this access deer problem, right? So they're like feral ungulates. They are, you know, they decimate places. Yeah. But there's thousands. Of, I think there's like 60,000 of them yeah. or so. So what the company does is they will hunt the deer mm-hmm. and they will humanely like kill them. So there's mm-hmm. no stress on this animal whatsoever. I think the USDA are in the trucks like with them. So they will process that thing in something like 45 minutes or whatever. Wow. So it's basically organic. It's like the healthiest, no steroids ever lived in the nature, no stress, dying. And then what they'll do is they'll ship it to you. Oh. Yeah. So they even have Kamaina packs and like, and Kamaina kind of discounts on certain things. They're reducing the, that population to kind of a safe level. And then they are creating a sustainable business. But the meat itself, it tastes almost to me like filet mignon because it's so tender. Yeah. Or almost like a duck. To an extent, but there's like no fat in it really. Yeah. Yeah. No, we love local venison. We had a friend and we have an outside freezer too, you know, because we we feed our dogs raw food too. Mm. We're super aware of, of, of what we eat and our dogs too. But anyway, we had like all this, I think it was Big Island venison, I think. I don't know. My husband got it. But we had like packs and packs and packs of it and we just used the last one. Literally, I think a month ago. And so, yes, we're looking for a new source Check for good. Check it out. Good. The Maui okay. venison. Yeah. Okay. It has no sugar in it. I mm-hmm. eat that as my snack. Yeah. It doesn't spike my blood sugar. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I don't yeah. get tired after I eat it. Good. Yeah. That's how I feed my microbiome primarily is through food. But I do take supplements as well. Not so much probiotics because it's really hard to find good, real probiotic pretty much is a few essential nutrients and vitamins that our body needs, your microbiome makes. And it can only make it if you have intake of certain kinds of foods. So the best source to feed your microbiome is going to be whole foods, fruits, vegetables, washed, of course. I mean, garden grown and organic, no pesticides is the best, right? But if you buy it from the store, make sure that you thoroughly wash your fruits and vegetables that's the best way to get it colorful. So the phytonutrients in colorful fruits and vegetables is the best, particularly black and purple. So I'm talking blackberries, blueberries, eggplant, right? Those kinds of foods are super good. Mushrooms. Mushrooms are awesome. And just all kinds of greens. Just eat the rainbow is what so they do say. You do, do you take prebiotics? Prebiotics, probiotics, postbiotics in different forms. Yeah. yeah. Our supplements for the last four years, I think we've been obtaining from a company called Amare, A-M-A-R-E. And it's so interesting because they were one of the first companies that I became aware of that connected gut health to mental health. 
And it's pretty much, I think, known now that the fiber you eat helps you grow a healthy microbiome and it's in your gut that 70% of your health of your feel-good neurotransmitters are produced, right? And it's the health of the gut that also determines the signaling between the gut and the brain. Because that's another area that even if you have a healthy gut, if that connection between your gut and your brain is has static, you may not be getting the full benefit of dopamine, serotonin, right? All of those other kinds of neurotransmitters. So well, yeah. a lot of the serotonin receptors are in your gut. Exactly. Yeah. As, as well as 90% of your immune system. So this is the kind of where the functional medicine aspect comes in, is when you are able to become aware of root cause, right? We're a system. So not only are we human cells, but we're trillions of bacterial cells that are commensal that we need to survive. If you have bacteria in your gut, you won't survive. If you have a dysbiosis or an imbalance of good and bad bacteria, if there are too many bad bacteria in your gut, that can be life-threatening. H. pylori, all of these different you know, fungus right, and yeast can be very bad for you. My microbiomes right now are communicating with your microbes. We have microbes in our, in our airway, in our oral microbiome. So Dr. Mark Hyman, who is kind of the founding father of functional medicine, Cleveland Clinic, all of that stuff. He has excellent podcasts and books and, you know, information out there that people can research. What's your thoughts on hormone replacement? You know, I functional am, medicine doctors yeah, are typically yeah. dealing with hormone replacement therapies, testosterone, estrogen, bioidentical. Yeah. I guess for me personally, I haven't really had a a health concern in that area that's that stimulated me to dive deeper in it. I have a really good friend, Dr. Margaret Christensen. She has a women's health clinic in Dallas, Texas called Carpathia Collective. And all of my, at least for females, hormone questions, I, I ask her and I don't have concerns in that area for myself personally. So I don't really know. I would say, I guess, generally that I would probably want to take a natural approach first for balancing hormones, even sleep, you know, getting adequate sleep, getting adequate exposure to you know, infrared light by being outside to balance out your natural production of melatonin, all of that stuff, I think comes in handy. But yeah, I'm not as familiar with hormones. Oh. Yeah. Are you tracking your glucose? No. So I have a, I have a track mm -hmm. because 90 something percent of people that are pre-diabetic, they don't know, right? Mm -hmm. And all my blood tests were showing pretty good. But then when I got this, it's like, well, I'm right in that range, right? Oh, so mm -hmm. which the symptoms for that would be fatigue, brain fog. You feel like you're getting older, libido, the mm -hmm. whole deal, right? Mm -hmm. And by monitoring that, it makes a big difference. But I'll tell you the one thing, because I've been monitoring this for maybe a month only, the one big factor for me is electrolytes. Mm -hmm. I didn't even think about it. I took it because I don't know why I did. Somebody was like, I had these liquid ones that we would take. And I had to get new ones because we ran out. And my son had like a stomach thing. So he's like, we've got to get more. And then this other one popped up. So I bought it. It's LMNT. But it was like really expensive. It was like $1.50 a packet. Wow. And I was like, dude, this thing is expensive, but whatever, I'll buy it. So I bought it. And then as I was tracking it on this, I noticed, holy cow, my blood sugar is going down. Mm. And it's staying consistent and not spiking the same as it would with the same type of meals. Yeah. And... Yeah, so that one to me is like, wow, this is something really interesting. 
you can actually make it yourself if you go to the website uh-huh. and you just buy it in bulk because it's only three ingredients it's salt potassium chloride mm-hmm. and magnesium malate in mm-hmm. like specific amounts mm-hmm. you just measure it yourself but that one has been kind of game changer yeah by keeping the blood sugar kind of stable and not at a heightened level just everything energy level mood the whole deal yeah. how many times you got to go bathroom you know all of that stuff you know <laughs> yeah. it yeah. just kind of evens out where it's like oh is this my mental my mental status or so on it's yeah. actually you know, that one was physical. Yeah, it's so yeah. interesting. I mean, this stuff is really, really nerd out when it comes to health stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, there's so much, right? I mean, another thing that I've been doing for organizations, you know, I think it was May, right? May is Mental Health Month. I was so busy doing lunch and learns and presentations on health things. And I was bringing a functional medicine angle to my health talks. Mm-hmm. So I talked about heart resonance. Right. You're and talking how, about HRV or yeah, okay. heart rate variability. Mm-hmm. But it's about how probably by now, because we've been talking for a while, our heart rate variability is probably synced up. Right. And that speaks to in, in, you know, in an organizational context, it talks about the workplace, you know, and with remote work being prevalent now, there's still an important place for in person interactions to happen with employees, you know? And so that dynamic of understanding, you know, if you're stressed, your heart rate variability is becoming incoherent. That's what we call kind of irregular and kind of spiky, right? Not calm. Mm -hmm. And you're walking into a meeting, you are impacting the other people in the room with your energy, your heart rate variability being incoherent. So One of the things that I coach clients around is when they are about to go into an important meeting and they're feeling a bit nervous about it or they're giving a presentation. I even had this one client who had to fire an employee and, you know, coaching them and guiding them to do some of these mental fitness exercises right before they have to have a difficult conversation. And not only does it help with just bringing stress level down and heart rate variability into some coherence, but it's also helping them to get into the right mindset, connecting with that empathy circuitry. And so when they're having these difficult conversations, it's going a lot better for them. Or, you know, if they're going into a meeting, they're feeling much more grounded and present. The experience of these workplace situations are a lot more positive. And productive. Have you ever heard of internal family systems or IFS? I had not until I read it on, I think, on your website. Oh. I still don't know much about it, though. What is that? So IFS is a psychotherapy model. Mm-hmm. It's super fast growing. Like for a therapist to get into a level one training, which is from the institute that basically hosts IFS, there's like thousands of people trying for like 32 spots. So mm. the concept is that is that there's a multiplicity of mind. So what would happen is we all have parts, right? So in yours, it's like you have a saboteur, right? There are different parts. Like one does it this way, one does it that way. Some part might tell you like, hey, you should work harder. And then another one's like, no, 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 you should not work, right? So we all have these different parts of us and they all have roles. So the two primary roles are one is a protector. So protect the system. One will manage things and then another one will jump in reactively when emotions get out of control. And the other part's role will be a part that holds a wound. So Mm. it actually gets injured and it holds that wound. And every time it wants to come back up because it wants to heal that, then that same pain comes with it. 
And once that pain comes in, so let's say the pain is shame. I'm bad. Something's wrong with me. It comes up. It did not get the, what it needed to be able to resolve that at the time. It starts to come up. Mm-hmm. Now, managing parts need to manage that. So the ones that are like, you know, I'm going to be a good student, or I'm going to be really smart, or I'm going to be pretty all the time, or funny, or I'm, you know, things like that. And when it doesn't work, then the reactive firefighter ones come in. And that could be any addiction, that could be rage, anger, drinking, could be extreme self-talk, could be gambling, all the way up until suicide, right? And suicide actually has a good intention, but the impact is definitely not necessarily good, right? And then when you have those parts, we have ourselves. So that's what we had talked about earlier, mm-hmm. right? You come in with it at birth, you leave with it at death. It's your, your soul, your spirit. It's just kind of all-knowing. But when there are things happening, like there's, there's traumatic things going on or so on, parts all take over and then self is kind of evacuated for the most part. So it's like the self would be like the sky and the parts would be like the clouds. But if you're in the Pacific Northwest, nine months, the clouds are in front of the sky. Sky's not hurt, but the longer it goes, you just feel there's no more sky. Mm-hmm. And people's like, well, I got to go find myself. It's actually there. It's just kind of covered up. So I in IFS it's it's basically building the relationship between self and parts and then those the relationship once it's strong enough with the protective parts that allow self to go to the parts that hold the wounds heal the wounds because the wound they're not their wound right they just hold that wound and then those other parts that we're protecting have they don't have to protect that way anymore so instead of me going to, so let's say, let's, you named it, you know, this in, I think in your model, it'd be like saboteur. Instead of me having to convince this one to calm down and this one to kind of come up, what's happening is we're building relationships between self and these parts, and then being able to go to the part that holds the wound that gets these ones to actually do what they're doing and heal that up. Mm-hmm. And That's then that one spouts back to its fun-loving self, and then there's nothing to protect against anymore. Mm-hmm. This is, you know, you don't need a, prison guards if there's no more prisoners. Right, right, right. right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's really interesting. That kind of reminds me, it's like I started talking about the via character strengths and then we kind of got on a tangent. But yeah. one of the connections that I wanted to make there is that the saboteurs in the positive intelligence language, what the saboteurs do is cause an overuse or underuse of your strengths. So for example, I mentioned earlier that I have a strong hyper-rational saboteur, right? So I like to intellectualize things. Well, one of my top strengths is love of learning from the via character strengths. Mm -hmm. Innately, I'm curious. Innately, I love to learn about things, how things are, why things are, right? All of those things. So what happens is that when I get triggered by my hyper-rational saboteur, it creates an overuse of my love of learning. So I can get distracted. I can spend too much time going down a rabbit hole. I can overvalue intellectual knowledge over other things. That is the positive intelligence perspective of the, the role of the, how the saboteurs negatively impact us is by creating like this overuse of, okay. of a strength that you have, right? In psychology, it's called the golden mean when you are able to use your strengths in the most positive way, not 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 being overused or underused. Yeah. And and the saboteurs also create an underuse of a strength. So for example, there's there's a saboteur, the avoider, right? The of, of avoiding things. So 
if the avoider is going to underuse, let's say, someone who has a strength of humor, then the avoider is going to rationalize away being funny by imposing thoughts about shame, right? Shame, embarrassed, don't embarrass yourself. You know, you're always so, you know, just avoid, you know, avoiding situations where you are attracted to because you have a natural strength of wanting to engage in things that are fun and you want to apply yourself and bring humor to things, but your avoider is now causing an underuse. So, you know, that's a little bit of how that works in the positive intelligence. In the IFS lens, Mm -hmm. all of those different pieces that you're talking about Mm -hmm. would be typically would be a different part. Mm -hmm. So like when I heard that it was, you have one that's really hyper-rational, a hyper-rational part that is trying to make sense of everything and make sure that, you know, this is what makes sense and that this is to to basically protect you. Mm-hmm. And then there's also another part that loves to learn. When I listen to that or I hear it, it could or could not be, but that sounds like two different parts. And then what they're typically doing is they are going active because there's another part under there that's holding some kind mm-hmm. of wound. The wound, tip, I don't know, it could be grief, it could be shame, I'm not good enough or so on. So guess what? I'm going to hyper-rationalize all these things. So what would happen in like, an IFS or parts kind of framework is to not necessarily pathologize and say, okay, you're good or bad or anything like that. No judgment. It's just get to know them better. Because if you actually asked the parts, they will tell you like this one that's hyper-rational say, you know, Robin, I've been with you since four years old when your mother did this and so on. And because we hyper-rationalized out of it, I've been doing this job nonstop forever. I get zero like appreciation, but I'm working around the clock. And my intention is only to help you and has no idea on the impacts. And then the other one, which is I want to learn the same thing, you know, hey, three years old, this is what happened. I start to learn. And then when those get heard and seen and validated and so on, they can soften their own intensity Mm -hmm. on their own. And then the one that holds the pain, which is, and that's the hard thing about a child, right? Like I could be yelling at somebody out the window of my car, but my child doesn't know that they think I'm yelling at them when they're young, right? Mm -hmm. So now it becomes, oh, something's wrong. I am bad, right? And then whenever that feeling comes up, which is painful, then the other one's got to kind of jump in. A lot of parts going on there. You know, it's interesting because when I was young, I, I always thought that I wanted to be a psychologist. I, I wanted to be a psych. I love teaching people. You know, I was like always the, you know, summer fun counselor, right? I would always volunteer to be the summer fun counselor. I enjoyed getting kids to interact with each other in a, in a fun way. I've always enjoyed that. But when I went to University of Oregon in Eugene and- I did too. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. 91 to 93. Oh, I lasted two years. That's about uh-huh. it. Over there. Yeah. Okay. Well, I was, I'm older than you. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but I think my first declared major was actually computer science. That's the hyper-rational, analytical part of me. But anyway, back then, this was in the early 80s, computer science back then was about programming, not my cup of tea. So I ended up changing my major to psychology. But I didn't like that either because I didn't enjoy learning about the disorders. Like the DSM. You know, yeah. I didn't enjoy learning about the problem, the dark side of... The pathologization of... Yes. I didn't, yeah. Somebody. Right. I didn't didn't enjoy that part. And so I ended up going into communications. 
but I've always had an interest. You know, I've always been one who enjoyed self-personal development. You know, I remember back when Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People came out and they were touring the country with workshops and stuff. That was right around then. Yeah, I I would go to those and I've always been interested in personal development. And so sales for me was kind of a natural profession to get into because I enjoyed helping people solve problems, helping people find solutions, right? Talking to people, you know, having relationships. But, you know, so in a way, I kind of wish that I found coaching earlier because I think that right right now I'm having the time of my life. You know, I really enjoy what I'm doing. It's evolving. I started my practice in April 2020, right when the pandemic hit. And I actually wondered if I should hold off because of the timing of things. But I thought, no, what, you know, let's just see what happens, right? And it actually was the best time to start my practice because we were in a two weeks to flatten the curve mode. Everybody was at home. And I just... High um, demand. Well, I, I didn't even know, right? I just said... So I was in the 2004 class of the Pacific Century Fellows. And so I just, oh, you just sent an me. email out and I just said... I saw it. You saw it? Yeah, because I'm, oh, I'm oh, 05. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that's what I did. I just said, who wants free coaching? Right? I just thought, I'll just put it out there. Give give away three sessions to people. I'd, I had like 12 people respond and I had an uptake of 12 clients right away. And then so I did the free sessions and it was my, it was a good way for me to get into, you know, becoming like a coach and embodying that for real <laughs> and all of this stuff. And more than half of them continued on with paid coaching. And it was really from there. And, you know, talk about strategic, right? So Pacific Century Fellows, they're all leaders. These are all people who are like in that sweet spot of my niche of doing executive coaching. And so more than half of them continued on with paid coaching. And then from there is how I started to grow my practice. And now I'm working with organizations. So it's been a very exciting evolution, but the work itself is so, so, it's just so satisfying. I'm, I'm like in alignment, right? With, mm-hmm. <laughs> with my purpose, my calling. I want to be a part of the light. I want to be a part of human flourishing. I want to be a part of people experiencing the very best life that they can possibly experience. And that's a choice in a way. That the experience that we have in our life is, is in a way a choice of how we navigate through it. And so I just really want to help people do that because I've had a lot of people help me. That's cool. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that we didn't cover today that you wanted to mention? You know, I have a relationship with Hawaii Pacific Neuroscience. And as a board certified health and wellness coach, one of the things that the industry itself is working on is getting health and wellness coaching covered by insurance. But right now, you may be able to use your health savings account or FSA money to cover health and wellness coaching. It's got to be acknowledged by a physician. So if you're under a lot of stress or if you're maybe caregiving and it's, you know, you can get your doctor to say, you know, I think Evan will benefit from health and wellness coaching for whatever. I I have documentation from the national board that says that this is recognized as a qualifying expense for your FSA or HSA. But the industry itself is working on getting, we do have CPT codes for insurance coverage, but it's getting the insurance companies to recognize it. 
and reimburse on it. So that's still a work in progress. Mm. Well, cool. Well, I appreciate you coming on. I wanted to acknowledge you. Anybody who takes care of their parents or others, I understand how hard that is personally. So that and with your coaching to help others, it's pretty exciting. So thank thank you you so much for coming. Thank you, Evan. This has been fun. Great to be here. If you resonate with Greater Good Radio, please join our community at www.greatergoodradio.com where you can get access to exclusive content and offerings. Hope to see you soon.